So um, as most of you would know, the passage we read is from what is called the Sermon on the Mount. Now the section assigned to me for preaching was the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. Given that that runs from chapters 5 to 7 of Matthew, I uh, pretty wisely, if I say so myself, decided to focus on a particular section. And uh, the section that caught my attention uh, is this familiar passage from Matthew chapter 6, which has two sections, right? It um, has section from 19 to 24, and then from 25 to 34. Uh, 25 to 34 begins, do not be anxious. And that's the passage that very commonly is preached. Uh, I wanted to preach on that too, right? Do not be anxious about your life is a great message for the new year. Uh, and, um, you know, it's a nice therapeutic kind of sermon uh, for our souls on a Sunday afternoon. But uh, what I noticed is that verse 25 begins with a therefore. And as we'll see, the message that Jesus says about being not being anxious, do not be anxious, is incomplete without understanding why exactly he says we do not need to be anxious about our life and about tomorrow. And it's not a manual on how not to worry or even why not to worry. He said what Jesus puts before us is a choice between two ways of living. One that puts its trust in the world and uh, seeks after the things of the world only to find anxiety and dissatisfaction and the other that seeks after God and finds peace and fulfillment. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is perhaps the most famous of Jesus' teachings, not just to Christians, but also to others. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi, who's the famous Indian freedom fighter, said that if Christianity was just the Sermon on the Mount, he would be a Christian, right? So it has inspired writers, artists, freedom fighters, politicians, and so many more. But the reason for that fame has to do with the misconception that the Sermon is Jesus' teaching on human behavior on how to behave. But actually, the Sermon on the Mount is not about behavior. Behavior is the result of Jesus' commandments, but it's not its focus. The focus of the Sermon on the Mount is to be a, what we call a manifesto, a manual for Christian living. And as described by Jesus, Christian life is radically different from worldly life. You could say that Christian living is counter-cultural. And what the sermon talks about is the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew calls it. And it's talking about how to live as a disciple in the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? We won't spend too much time on this, but it's good to just refresh ourselves. What is the kingdom of God? The Bible speaks about, broadly, about two kingdoms under God's control. There is a universal kingdom, you know, in, in which every person in the universe is ruled by God, whether that person follows or obeys God or not. So that's a universal kingdom. But the kingdom of God, as proclaimed by Jesus in the Gospels, is the realm or the domain under the sovereign control of God in which he accomplishes his plan of salvation. So there's a universal kingdom, and the kingdom of God is the space within that universal kingdom in which God works out his plan of salvation. As uh, D.A. Carson puts it, the kingdom of heaven is the exercise 
of God's sovereignty which bears directly on his saving purposes. All who are in the kingdom have eternal life. All who are not in the kingdom do not have eternal life. So that's the difference between the universal kingdom and the kingdom of God. Now the boundaries between these two kingdoms can sometimes be blurry from our perspective. So that's why in the parables Jesus talks about those who appear to be part of the kingdom of God but are not really part of it. The kingdom of God is already present but it will only be fulfilled or come to a completion in the future. So the expected fulfillment and the ultimate manifestation of the kingdom of God in a physical and spiritual sense lies in the future. Therefore, many promises and blessings of the kingdom of God await a future fulfillment. And finally, the kingdom of God is a realm in which only God has authority. And that authority is mediated or it is, um, it is, it is reflected through Jesus Christ. So everyone who is in the kingdom has to give wholehearted loyalty and allegiance to Jesus Christ. Therefore, we read in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So there's authority there. And if you belong to the kingdom of God, you are under the authority of God. So the Sermon on the Mount is about how to live in the kingdom of God under, under the authority of Jesus Christ. And the audience of the Sermon on the Mount is everyone who wishes to be disciples and citizens of this kingdom. That definitely includes um, all Christians, including all of us here today. You know, there's been some confusion in the past whether the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount apply to Christians. But it is clear once we understand what the kingdom of God is and how the Sermon on the Mount affects every aspect of Christian teaching that we need to understand it and apply it in our own lives. Now part of that hesitation in the past, especially in North America, came because of the radical nature of Jesus' teachings on character, on relationships, on righteousness. And in a time in which Christianity was the culture, that radicalness might have seemed over the top. But now, as history has proven, you know, the world will never tolerate Christians to be dominant for too long. And today, when Christians are increasingly being shoved to the margins, the countercultural radicalness of the Sermon on the Mount makes more sense than ever before. So before the passage we are reading today, Jesus has already talked about character and testimony and righteousness and anger uh, and sexual ethics and charity and more. And, and in the immediately preceding section, he has warned about not having the religion of the Pharisees, which is a religion that is merely outward but has no inner uh, fulfillment. So kingdom disciples are to be different from the religious show-offs of the world. Now Jesus goes on to show how kingdom disciples are supposed to be different from the godless pagans or the Gentiles of the world in their motivations, in their pursuits, and in their ambitions. So before he gets to behavior, before he gets to the part where he says, do not be anxious, he begins with motivation. Because motivation drives behavior, right? Ethics drive actions. 
So before we get to why we should not be anxious, Jesus specifies how a disciple of the kingdom should aim to live. And this section can be neatly tied to three uh, aspects of living, each pertaining to the example. First, of the treasure, then of the eye, and finally of the master. Okay, So let's read um, chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth, moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. First, Jesus addresses the question of goals. What is it that you seek to achieve as a result of all of your endeavor, as a result of all of your effort? Do you or do we aim to keep storing up earthly treasures? You know, in Scripture... In scripture, the love of wealth or the love of money is talked of as evil. But money itself is not evil, right? So in fact, scripture praises employment, so where you work for money. Scripture praises our efforts to wisely provide for our family. Scripture praises uh, our efforts to provision for the future. You know, like Proverbs 6 and 6 talks about the example of the ants, Scripture gives us the freedom to enjoy all the good things that have been provided by God for our pleasure. It's a question of the heart. It's not money that is evil. It is the love of money that's evil. What is your goal? Is your heart set on the kingdom or on the earth and its pleasures? Are you being provident in your efforts or are you being covetous in your pursuit of money? Or as you know, many of us can attest to, are we claiming the pursuit of providence while secretly hiding the sin of covetousness? So if our goal is to endlessly accumulate earthly treasure, Jesus says that goal, uh, that goal is stupid. Okay, that's what he says, because earthly treasures are susceptible to decay and corruption and expiration. Thieves can break in and steal. Moth can destroy expensive fabric. Expensive fabric was a big signpost of wealth in the ancient world. And rust can eat through buildings. Uh, it can eat through food supplies, which is what Jesus talked about here. He's not talking about the rust that we know of on our cars, but rather of like bacteria and, and, and viruses that eat through crops. And in today's world, we have you know, security systems. right? Many of us have security systems, but we have not armed it. That's fine. Uh, we have security systems, we have antibacterial agents, but we have not figured out how to beat inflation, how to, how to beat deflation, how to handle the cycle of boom and bust, housing bubbles, uh, currency devaluation, right? The, on Friday, I work uh, in the currency markets, so I know this. Friday, the Canadian dollar was 69 cents to the US dollar, right? That means 69 US cents gives you one Canadian dollar. There was a time like three years ago where it was at par, where one US dollar gave you one Canadian dollar, right? So it's lost 30% of value in like three years. That means, essentially, if you bought a house three years ago, and that house appreciated 20% in three years, which is not bad, 
in real terms, you still have lost 10%. See, ignorance is bliss sometimes, right? See, the agents of rust and decay may have changed, but the end result is the same. Earthly treasures cannot be trusted to endure. Instead, Jesus asks us to set our hearts on the kingdom and pursue kingdom goals, laying up treasures above, treasures that will last into eternity. The treasures of heaven are not susceptible to rust and decay. Their value doesn't change with the market. What are the treasures that can be laid up in heaven? Uh, This is what John Stott says. The development of Christ-like character, since all we can take with us to heaven is ourselves. The increase of faith, hope, and charity, all of which Paul said abides. Growth in the knowledge of Christ, whom one day we shall see face to face. The active endeavor by prayer and witness to introduce others to Christ so that they too might inherit eternal life. And the use of our money for Christian causes, which is the only investment whose dividends are everlasting. These are all investments that are guaranteed for eternity. You know, in Revelation chapter 14, it talks about uh, the martyrs at the end of the days. And this is what it says. I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors because their deeds will follow them. So Jesus asks, do you have worldly goals that will result in things that will decay and rust and rot? Or do you have kingdom goals goals that are uh, guaranteed to have returns not only today, but will follow you into eternity? So that's the first one, kingdom goals. Secondly, he talks about uh, the eye. This is in verses 22 and 23 of chapter 6. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is you, in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So what is Jesus talking about here? He's looking at the concept of vision. Okay? What is the foresight, uh, the, the view of the horizon that controls our behavior and our actions? He's using the metaphor of the eye as a source of light for the whole body. Think of it as the eye is like a window and your body is a room. So the eye is a window through which light comes from the outside and your body is the room. So if the eye is good or healthy, then the room is filled with light. But if your eye is bad, like the window is covered with grime and soot, the body is filled with darkness. To put it simply, What the eye sees and is focused on determines the illumination of the whole body. So what we read, when the ESV says the eye is healthy, the root word for healthy uh, or good uh, means single or singular. That's what the KJV says, if your eye is single. I told my wife, do you know what it means if the eye is single? She's like, oh, like Cyclops? I'm like, no, it's not. um, What it means is a singleness of vision, right? Is our vision, kingdom vision, uh, that is with an eye that is constant and unwavering in its gaze upon God? You know, when, you're, when, you, when, when you first learn to drive, they say, uh, always look forward and aim where you want to go, rather than constantly fidget and look around. Because being focused in your gaze determines that you'll move forward safely and with determination. What are our eyes cast upon? Is it cast upon God and his purposes and his values? Or could it be that our vision is not fixed on the straight and narrow, but rather 
We are looking to the left and right, uh, our gaze meandering after the world and its pleasures. If our vision is not good, and it gets sooty and grimy due to false gods, like materialism and worldly treasure, then we are in darkness and cannot see where we are going. That's what Jesus is saying. And that tragedy of reckless, aimless wandering is made sadder by the fact that sometimes what is darkness is seen as light by many, as Jesus says. If the light in you is darkness, what a great tragedy that is. If your vision is not fixed on God, it is in darkness. But you can fool yourself by saying, no, that's the light, and where I'm headed down is the right path. You know, this is actually manifested even in secular settings, right? Like, uh, have you heard of, uh, you know, the scandal that recently afflicted Volkswagen, the car company, right? Uh, I don't know if I rubbed in a raw nerve with some people, but um, what it was, what they found out was, you know, Volkswagen was cheating on emissions testing, and, and, and the root cause of that was someone set goals for the engineers, which they could not achieve, so one person decided, oh, we're going to cheat on this, then somebody else came to know of it, and then they said, that's fine, and it perpetuated until an entire organization in a committed fraud. And, and this happens so often in corporate settings uh, that there's even a word for it. Uh, because uh, if, you, if you, I don't know, if you remember, uh, NASA sent a, a shuttle into space a long time ago called Challenger, which exploded as soon as it launched. And the report on that said, these people found so many issues and errors, and they've said in the beginning, okay, that's okay, we'll look at it next time. Then they said, that's fine, that's fine, that's fine, that's fine. Until an entire organization, in this case NASA, looked over what was evidently wrong and said it was right. And what the person called it is called, it's called the normalization of deviance. What that means is the ability of the human mind to convince itself that what is wrong is really right. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, laid out the truth that the world is only discovering. Our vision and our values determine our behavior. But more than that, he's pointing us to the ultimate truth, the ultimate vision, which is kingdom vision. But behind the questions of what our goals are and what our vision is, lies the more fundamental choice of whom do we serve. 6 and verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Who do we owe our unquestioned, undivided loyalty or allegiance to? Whom we serve determines the course of our life. Our choice of who is master shows what we truly value, what we determine is of worth, and what is ultimately glorious in our life. And you have to understand that the roles mentioned here is not of an employer and an employee. Because in that case, divided loyalties are possible, right? You can have two jobs. You can have a part-time job and a full-time job. Rather, here it pictures a slave and his master. This is what um, A.H. McNeil says. Men can work for two employers, but no slave can be the property of two owners. For single ownership and full-time service is the essence of slavery. To be a slave in the kingdom of God is to serve him with undivided loyalty. To be a servant of God is to owe him our unquestioned allegiance. The other possible master here is described here as mammon or money. 
you know, which stands in for all worldly worth and ambition. To believe that we can serve God while chasing after worldly worth is to fool ourselves. Either we love one and hate the other, or we are devoted to one and we despise the other. You know, Isaiah says in chapter 42 and verse 8, this is the, this is the Lord speaking. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God is not willing to share his glory with any other pursuit. Either he's our master fully, or we are idolaters. There's no question of divided attention. There's no question of multiple priorities. In fact, the word priority itself is a singular word. And for most of uh, its history, it was used as a singular word till about the 1900s. You know, the plural version priorities really began only to be seen from like 1940s. And if you look at the Oxford Dictionary, even today, it says, priority is the fact, of condition, fact or condition of being regarded or treated as more important than others. The author, Greg McEwen, writes about this in his book, Essentialism. He says, only in the 1900s did we pluralize the term priority and start talking about priorities. Illogically, we reasoned that by changing the word, we could bend reality. Are we trying to bend reality? When we say we have multiple priorities, we are saying nothing really is a priority. Nothing really is important. We can choose to serve either God or mammon. Either we are 100% committed to the kingdom or we are 100% committed to idolatry. There is no middle ground. So Jesus points us to the absolute necessity of serving God alone if we are to be disciples of the kingdom. If God is our master, then our goals and our vision will be aligned with his purposes. See, kingdom loyalty leads to kingdom goals and kingdom vision. Now we come to the second part of the passage in verses 25 to 34. And that's why it begins with therefore, because the message that follows is only applicable to a disciple of the kingdom, a disciple who lives life as outlined by Jesus in the previous section. So verses 25 to 34, it says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious about itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So, it's kind of evident that the key admonition, the key message of this passage is to not be anxious, right? It's mentioned five times in the space of nine verses. 
Specifically, he tells his disciples not to be anxious about food and, and clothing and drink and life uh, in general. And perhaps the disciples, having been told by Jesus to not chase after the luxuries of the world, to not find their fulfillment in the pleasures of the world, cast their mind on the more fundamental needs that one has to survive. You know, Lord, I need to uh, provide for my family. I need to have food. I need to have shelter. I need to have clothing. Is it possible to truly live life without worrying about where our next meal and clothing and shelter is going to come from? And Jesus' answer to this question, while it is summarized in the phrase, do not be anxious, contains within it uh, a, a few complex ideas. First off, what he's saying is that if you have rejected the world's goals and vision and have chosen to serve God only, if you have said the things of the world do not have any worth to you, then we should not be anxious about the things of the world, including our fundamental needs, because we trust God to provide for those needs. Right? And this is what Carson says again. Jesus answers that just as earthly possessions can become an idol, which deposes God by becoming important, so also can earthly needs become a source of worry which deposes God by fostering distrust. So where treasures can take the place of God because they become important to us, earthly needs can take the place of God because they become a source of worry. So that's the first idea. Secondly, as Christians, as disciples of the kingdom, we then have the opportunity to be different from everyone else who concentrate on the security that the world provides. Instead, we do not need to concentrate our mind and energy on the pressures and concerns of the world, those that pertain to worldly needs and worldly security. But instead, we can set the example and seek first the concerns of the kingdom of God. So the first aspect of that is don't be like the Gentiles. You know, I like the translation, do not be anxious, a little bit more than do not worry. Because anxiety makes the intent more clear than worry. What is anxiety? You know, the KJV says, take no thought. But it is not the lack of thought, nor is it the lack of forethought that is a problem. Right? It, it, it is anxious thought about sustenance, about needs of tomorrow. It is the sleeplessness that comes from inordinately worrying about how you're going to meet future needs. That is anxiety. It is not saying that laziness or recklessness is encouraged because those things are addressed in scripture also. It is not work that is the issue, but it is a constant fretting about things that are outside our control and constantly seeking to somehow secure our worldly future. That is the focus of Jesus' prohibition. And in our situation today, we can expand that sphere of needs you know, to include things like uh, self-worth and self-esteem. You know, if, you, if any of us went through like basic economics or psychology, there's something called Maslow's Pyramid. You seen that? So once you go up the rungs, you know, you reach the, the need of self-affirmation or self-worth. And in a rich society like ours, where there is social security, we have become anxious about such questions as how people perceive us or how do we find satisfaction in our work. And so the needs that Jesus addresses you know, covers all cultural contexts. And, and Jesus points out 
using the examples of the body, the birds, the lilies, that worldly anxiety is unbecoming. It is not proper for the believer because, first of all, it is incompatible with faith in God, and secondly, it is it defies common sense. It's incompatible with faith in God, and then it defies common sense. How is anxiety incompatible with faith? Well, take the, well, uh, take the example of the body. If we believe, as all of us do, that God created our bodies with all of its complications and intricacies and complexities, what do you think is easier for God to do? To create the body or to provide food and clothing for that same body? Is not life that is created by God then more than just merely surviving? That's what Jesus is saying. If you believe that God created a body, surely it's not that hard for you to believe that God can provide for that same body. When we look at the birds and all of the created order, we see God's providence in action right before our very eyes. So in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, this is what Paul says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that men are without excuse. See, the birds do not have farms. They do not have um, you know, grain storehouses. They do not have supermarkets. Yet they do not lack for food because God feeds them. And what Jesus is saying is that if God is your heavenly father, do you think he cares more for the needs of the birds than he cares for his child? Finally, Jesus says to take a look at the lilies. Now, they're one, the lilies are one rung below the birds in that they do not do any work at all, right? In the sense of, uh, okay, some, some science kid is going to say, no, they do like photosynthesis. All right, no, um, in the sense of like toiling, they do no toil at all. And yet God's providence is so overwhelming that the lilies are arrayed in glory that eludes even Solomon and the richest of the rich. So Jesus says, why do you worry about clothing? These transient flowers that are here today will be burned up tomorrow in their time on earth are more glorious than even the richest of men why do you have to worry about clothing Jesus is alluding to the fact that as believers we know all of these things and our knowledge has been confirmed by our own past experiences and the testimony of our fellow Christians and yet we often choose to ignore that knowledge and experience and instead choose to be anxious about how our next set of needs are going to be bent. That is why Jesus calls the listeners at the end of verse 30, O you of little faith. The root of anxiety is unbelief. A willful denial of what we know about God from the testimony of scripture, from our own testimony, and from our experience. To be anxious about the needs of the world is to be like the Gentiles, like the pagans, the godless, who in denying God and his sovereign rule and laying their confidence in the world, seek after security that eludes them, saying what to eat, what to drink, what to wear. So anxiety is incompatible with faith. But it's also defined of common sense, right? By worrying, Jesus said, you cannot add a single hour to our lives. If anything, you'll reduce it. We cannot generate resources out of thin air, right? Like you cannot like concentrate uh, on an empty table and make food appear. Neither can we control tomorrow because we are not even sure that we will get through today. Um, we don't know if we'll wake up from sleep tonight 
and getting through today is in itself a, is, is in itself a struggle. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble, this says. So anxiety is incompatible with faith, and it's also defined of common sense. But we have the opportunity then to be different. It is not enough to, for Christians to not be anxious like the godless. Instead, we have been given the mandate to put our energy and focus on concerns that pertain to the kingdom. So the opposite of worldly anxiety for a Christian is not being happy-go-lucky or being apathetic about everything. Instead, just as the pagans are engaged in their pursuit of worldly security, so we are to be concerned about the advancement of the kingdom of God. That's why in 6 and 33 he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He's saying you do not have to worry about the things of the world because God's providential care will provide that for you. God will be glorified in your life. But instead, you have the mandate to be concerned about the things of God. In a sense, the lack of anxiety, of worldly anxiety in a Christian is commendable. But a lack of concern for the kingdom is not commendable. So in a sense, the lack of worldly anxiety is a good thing. The lack of kingdom anxiety is a sin. See, that's why we see Paul saying, you know, Paul, Paul said in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, that's what he said. He said, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made be known, known to God. He's talking about worldly anxiety. The same Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 28 to 29. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? So see, the, this passage of Jesus' teaching does not mean that the Christian life will be completely free of pressure and worry. Because there's a pressure that comes from the commitment we have made to follow Jesus Christ. There's a pressure that flows from seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But what scripture does promise us is that those commitments are not in vain because they're in the service of God who is not a debtor to anyone. A God who promises to add unto us all the things we need for sustenance if we are engaged in seeking after his righteousness. How many are the testimonies of the saints who have gone before us that verify the essential truth of this promise? of the miraculous provisions of food, of last-minute deposits in the bank. Our God shall supply all our needs, and he will be glorified in our lives. So why are we anxious about the things of the world? Instead, may our thoughts and our concerns and our sleepless nights, if we have them, be primarily engaged with the purposes of God. And that is a challenge. Because as human beings, we are innately, innately sensitive to the risk of not being able to survive tomorrow. And in our society today, because that risk in many ways is taken care of, we are supremely sensitive to questions of identity and self-worth. And many times the challenge for us as Christians arises when our kingdom concerns are mixed in with individual concerns. When we struggle to separate worldly anxiety from kingdom anxiety. Right? It's like there are times when I want to support a brother or an evangelist, 
and I and I think twice because I'm worried. Am I going below the minimum level I'm comfortable with in my bank? I'm speaking, I'm preaching today about worry, and I'm worried in some ways about how I'll be perceived. At the same time, I want to edify you. I want you to all have practical takeaways from the sermon. So those two concerns get mixed, and that influences how I approach my task of preaching. Now, can you imagine how great Christian hospitality would be if we were able to divorce our identity from how our houses looked or how we maintain our houses from our own idea of self-worth? If you wanted to go to a place that is really well laid out with excellent design, proper upkeep, you'd go to Ikea. Like they have $1 breakfast too. It's a double good deal. But if you have a need for Christian love and concern and hospitality, there's no other option than the house of a brother or a sister. So how are we to separate our anxieties from the concerns of the kingdom? How are we to disengage our minds from the pursuit of worldly treasures and security and instead focus our minds on the things about the pursuits that advance the kingdom of God in our lifetimes and beyond? That is hard, but it is not impossible. It requires spiritual and mental discipline. In denying ourselves daily, in increasing our knowledge of God, in increasing our love for the Son and for his people, and in our submission to the work of the Spirit that transforms our thoughts and our deeds. Jesus doesn't say that you will not have any worries, that you will not have any anxieties. But he says, if you're going to have worries, if you're going to have anxieties, may they be concerned with the kingdom of God and not with the kingdom of this world. All of us have heard of mold, right? Heard of mold, the, you know, the green thing that grows on bread if you keep it out for too long. Um, so mold is everywhere. Uh, and most mold is relatively harmless. You know, some mold is harmful. Some mold is beneficial, right? Like mold is a fungus. What is a beneficial mold? Uh, yeast is not a mold. Yeast is a fungus. Yeast is single-celled. Mold is multi-celled. Penicillin. Penicillin is a beneficial mold. Like Alexander Fleming uh, found penicillin, which was the source of the first antibiotics. And penicillin is a mold. Now, some mold is harmful in that they'll kill you. And one such mold is something called Aspergillus flavus. Right? So Aspergillus flavus is all around us. But in its native state, it is not harmful to human beings. But when it interacts with grains and cereals, it produces compounds that are toxic. At, at, at its base level of toxicity, when it interacts with, when it infects uh, crops, it, it creates compounds that cr cause liver cancer. At its extreme level of toxicity, you eat grains that are infected with aspergillus flavus, you will die on the spot. Now, here in the Western world, that's no longer really a concern because our governments have been very, you know, the regulators have said, this is how you store food, this is how you put expired labels and so on. It's still a problem in developing uh, nations. Like in 2004 in Kenya, like 200 people died from aspergillus flavus because they had stored corn um, underground and it became moldy and then they took it out and eat it, and 200 people immediately 
dead. Aspergillus flavus. Now, Aspergillus flavus is identical in the sense that it has a cousin. Uh, and by cousin, I do not mean like, you know, like what we say sometimes cousins, like you have to draw a tree. It's like uh, sons of brothers and uh, sisters type of cousin. It has a cousin um, in Japan called koji mold that is used to make sake, just like a wine, and is used, to, used by a company called Kikoman. Have you heard of Kikoman? To make soy sauce. It's the same, essentially the same mold. And Kikoman was so scared that its mold, its aspergillus, would somehow become this other aspergillus, you know, that you would dip your sushi in soy sauce and die, like it's not great, that they sent their mold to the US government and said, you need to analyze this because we are concerned that this thing is going to kill people. And the US government took a look at it and said, well, you're right, they're pretty much exactly the same, except the Kikoman mold has 22 genes that are different from the other one. That's it. Out of millions, it has like 22 genes that are different. And those 22 genes will never turn into the other one. So the Kikoman mold is safe. They're same on the surface, but they're different at the core. And you see, on the surface, the pursuit of worldly needs and the pursuit of God's kingdom can look the same. The zeal, you know, the pressure, the, the, the joy, the disappointments, the worries, the anxieties. Yet one is a seeking that will not find true fulfillment, for it puts its confidence in things and institutions that cannot satisfy the never-ending needs of the worldly man. Ultimately, the security it finds is a false god, susceptible to rust and moth and decay. But to seek after God's kingdom is to align ourselves with the purposes of God himself, our Father in heaven, whose kingdom will come and whose will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The security that pursuit finds, the security that comes from seeking after the kingdom of God is eternal. The rest that it promises is everlasting and the rewards that it brings are non-perishable and incorruptible. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Uh, we'll sing the hymn, All the Way My Savior Leads Me. That's hymn number 476 in the Red Book, after we pray. Father God, we want to thank you a lot for this time and for your word that gives us wisdom a lot that is not just um, theological, but also practical in that it teaches us how to live our lives in this world a lot. Thank you a lot for, uh, for the Sermon on the Mount that teaches us a lot that if we fix our eyes on you and, and seek after your kingdom, that we do not have to worry about the things of this world. Instead, a lot, maybe concentrate our energies on, on your kingdom purposes and on your righteousness because we know a lot that you are a loving Father who provides for our every need. And maybe rest in that confidence and in that security. In Jesus' name we ask.